sometimes I'll I'll have that with like like the 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 newer people coming in, and I'm just like, gather around. I'm going to tell you about a time when you could make millions <laughs> of dollars. You just had a camcorder, a couch, and a couple of lights. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Dana Vespali. She is a pornographic actress and film director who also has a degree in comparative literature from Mills College. I was really interested to talk to Dana because, you know, she's a film fanatic, she loves books, and she's fascinated by subcultures, I think, as much as I am. And I just intuited that there must be a lot of overlap between these two industries of boxing and the world of pornography, Um, you know, both highly lucrative for some and a lot of cautionary tales all over the place as far as the general person interested in these things is concerned. And I thought she could provide a lot of nuance there. The world of pornography has an interesting delineation in that before streaming, more American dollars were spent on it than I think Hollywood and sports combined, if if I recall David Foster Wallace's Big Red Sun accurately. Um, And after streaming, it's just been decimated financially. So I wanted to, to hear about that. I wanted to understand how well it's been represented in films like Boogie Nights, um, where Paul Thomas Anderson's take is that this is really a surrogate family for a lot of the participants. And Dana herself is a mom. And uh, I was just so curious to have this conversation. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Dana Vespali. Um, I'm really interested. I'm so excited for us to have a chance to talk. And I was researching. um, I think I got the idea of wanting to talk to you after I reread Big Big Red Sun by David Foster Wallace, which I think was in the 1990s that he was sort of doing a deep dive into the industry. Um, But why don't we... Why don't we just start with... um, You were talking about going for your MFA pretty soon. Um, your original degree is in comparative literature, and I just love that there's this jump at 31. Um, where I, I'm just so curious, where you, how you got into this industry at 31? It, it seems like it seems very reminiscent to me of like some boxer who just dropped into the sport. Like you don't see somebody at 30 put on a pair of gloves and enter this industry. And I'm just wondering, like. You're from San Francisco originally. Maybe you can just, for people who don't know anything about you, just walk us through your journey a little bit. Sure. So I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I spent, you know, I went to school. I mean, I effectively grew up in the Bay Area, you know, because I went went there for school and lived there for several years after before moving to Los Angeles. Um, So the only way I can explain it is I guess my whole life as far back as I can remember I've always been very drawn to just I don't know whether to call it dark things or Mm -hmm. misunderstood things or I've always felt sort of like an outsider in pretty much everything I've ever done just sort of like I feel like an observer and I'd always been fascinated by 
I don't know. Um, forbidden things, I guess. I mean, going mm -hmm. as far back as being a child and, and, and discovering uh, by accident. Uh, I don't know. It's funny. I was re-watching a bunch of Brian De Palma movies. Um, mm -hmm. but, but things Which ones? Like, so uh, the first one was Blowout. Uh, Travolta. Yeah. And Nancy Allen. Um, Great movie. And Dressed to Kill. And uh, my boyfriend has a, he has a extensive movie collection. And so we were trying to find all his De Palmies. Like, I have Carrie. I don't have Body Double. I think I sold that. So we were re-watching some stuff. And, and, and that takes me back to my childhood, in watching De Palma movies and and these characters are oftentimes like Nancy Allen is a you know a sex worker in both Dressed to Kill and Blowout, um, but uh, just moving to San Francisco and, and there were just a lot of girls that I knew in college that were dancing. I mean that's how they were surviving at d different clubs. And, so and if I'm not if I'm sorry to interrupt, um, just two points jump out at me. One is that. I think De Palma was the first mainstream director to have an adult performer be in one of his films. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Annette Haven, I think, in Body Double. Sounds Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. Um, and the other thing, I had a girlfriend who lived in Portland, and I remember her telling me that it has the highest per capita of both university graduates and strip clubs. Yes. Which is bizarre. I didn't know that. I mean, I lived there and then I moved away and then I heard about that sort of like people saying, did you know that? Like, I, I, I wouldn't have. Uh, but at the time, it's, it's huh. weird because I don't think of Portland as a big city. But yeah, that's wild. No. Yeah. So when did you leave there? I mean, what did you want to do at that point? Like when you were growing up and a teenager in high school? I wanted to write. Um, I, I, uh, was really into theater. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school. I, I sort of had this fantasy of, of, um, being, uh, uh, writing plays and things. I, I, I saw, I watched, I saw a lot of theater. There were a lot of great opportunities. Um, at my performing arts high school, we would always get free tickets to different shows, whatever productions were happening locally. Um, and so I was thought about writing. I wasn't really clear in the way that some people are. I had a boyfriend in college. We met freshman year, and he was like, "So I'm I'm gonna get my degree in English. I'm gonna go teach, uh, teach English for a year somewhere, and then I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna go to law school." He did that. Like mm. he he knew that at like 18. This is this is my trajectory, and he did that. I was never that person. I was always sort of becoming fascinated by things and going off in these directions to to experience things. Um, yeah. I, I knew I wanted to write. I didn't know how. I didn't know how it was going to manifest itself. Um, then I moved to the Bay Area and was studying comparative literature. I was rowing crew. I was a, an athlete in college, working several jobs in college. Um, I wasn't dancing, though, but I had friends that were. I mean, I had one friend who was paying her entire tuition She at, at working at this club. And... Um, so I got into dancing later. I mean, after after college, um, I had been working this job, writing lease proposals in the financial district. I hated it. My boss was an asshole. And someone brought up dancing again. She was like, I'm making, you know, $800 a night dancing at Mitchell Brothers O'Farrell Theater. And I had a lot of respect for her. She was um, going to Berkeley. 
And I just thought, you know, everybody I know, not everybody, but I knew so, several young women that were dancing and seemed pretty stable. I mean, I, mm. I sort of fell into that idea too of sex workers have to be screwed up and damaged. I mean, I grew up believing that, even though right. I was fascinated by the culture, I was fascinated by the idea of just going and doing something wild, you know, like just going to a club and this is what you do and you, you, you make your own rules and all that kind of stuff. I still, in the back of my head, was like, oh, but that's for people that don't have goals. That's for people that are damaged. And so I put that away and then just went and started working at this club in the Tenderloin, this little, very very David Lynch-style club, like with hmm. interesting characters coming in and girls working there. And some of them were junkies and some of them were in grad school and some of them were moms and all these different types of women. And then, and then I ended up working at Mitchell Brothers of Feral Theater and moved to Los Angeles. I was still, I was making good money and I didn't know what I wanted, but it was sort of like this adventure. And I was meeting so many interesting people. And I'd started renting adult movies in college when I could like actually go in and rent them and bring them back to my dorm and watch them and return them and all that kind of stuff. And I'd been sneaking porn as early as middle school, just going and sneaking into these little, little, adult video arcade theaters and watching things I wasn't supposed to watch. And then, uh, and then in LA it's, I ended up doing some, uh, like second, second AD work on softcore adult movies. And that's sort of how it happened, you know, and I, I was 31 and in a weird way it made sense to wait that long because it may be surprising, but I'm pretty cautious by nature. Like I, I wanted yeah. to kind of, understand what I was getting into um, and so I felt like at that point it was also just like a, if I'm ever gonna do this I got to do it now because I knew that if I waited any longer I would I would never I would never try it so it, right. it seemed like a good time to start for me well it's fascinating because when I was researching the porn industry it seems to have run parallel a little with boxing in that financially it's this complete black box that I saw estimates of it earning four to six billion on the low end annually to some reports that were in several different places of making $97 billion annually at its peak, which right. would mean, I mean, Hollywood releases 600 movies making around 10 billion in profit. Um, so I had a graph here, estimated revenues from various industries in 2018 the NBA, 7.4 billion, Hollywood, 11, Netflix, 11, Viacom, 13 billion, NFL, 14 billion. So if the high end is accurate, or even a middle uh, figure of some of the estimates is accurate, porn is generating more than all of these combined. That is a cattail. Yes. <laughs> he likes to be wherever I am. All right. Mine is, to keep mine, is just over on the, mine is over on the sofa about three feet away. <laughs> a quarantine cat. Um, so I wonder, like, did you, I would be, I had a person, when I was an amateur boxer, I had a crush on a girl who ended up becoming a world champion as a professional boxer before women made any money, before female boxing was permitted in the Olympics. So I became so interested in this double life that she was leading of, you can you're not making a living wage as a boxer at that time as a woman not that women are making much money now relative to men 
um, there's a huge pay gap, but that kind of what you were saying about stripping, she was making huge money at the Spearmint Rhino in Las Vegas, like the highest, highest end strip club, I believe at that time, I think in the, the nineties. Um, and I was just wondering, like the fear that I felt stepping into a ring in front of a crowd, I would be even more afraid to strip naked in front of a crowd. I, I, I just wonder how, how much pressure it was that first time that you, you were in front of strangers and exposed yourself in that way, because I think most of the boxers that I've interviewed, it's a very similar experience to literally strip down and walk out into a ring and then the violent component. But it seems like there's a lot of overlap with the adult film industry and, and even stripping. Maybe maybe I'm inaccurate about that. No, that, it's funny because... Um, uh this um, coach Brandon that I work with at Outlaws in Tarzana, we talk about that. We talk about like um, arousal levels in terms of in terms of that. There's a lot of similarities between um, between the fight game and and sex work. Um, huh. But uh, there, so growing up, I was. In high school, I was, you know, I was, I was a sort of a goofball, and I, I enjoyed flashing people, like friends, you know, a large group of friends. It wasn't strangers, it's like that, and there was like a thrill that came. And I remember thinking back when I was talking to my friends that were dancing that uh, that it wouldn't be a big jump for me. That I, I wondered how if I'd be able to do it, and. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and it's funny because I go back to that and I'm like, you know, we can always imagine how things will play out, but we don't know until we're there. And so the very first time that I ever went to like an amateur night to dance, it was, I didn't know until I actually took off an article of clothing in front of a crowd of people. I just, anything can happen. I mean, you can scream and run off and the DJ had said, he goes, I've seen everything. I've seen girls come out during headlights and leave. Because I've seen girls freak out after the fact. I've seen girls, you know, sort of excited by it. It's, I, I just kind of like, once it happened, it was just sort of, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. It, it wasn't too hard. It was more, I was more terrified about my choice of music and if I was gonna slip. Cause the, there was also that thing too, the, uh, the uh, the the um, stage was was slippery, um, and I had yeah. heels. So right. I, had, I think I had too much to think about to even really worry about the removing the dress. It was, is my song okay, or is it, are people going to think it's dumb? Um, am I going to slip and fall? Um, there was a lot to occupy my mind. I think to take me out of that being afraid of the of the actual stripping component to dancing. So yeah, it was, it was uh, scary for different reasons. Well, and I wonder, I wonder also, like you were just saying, there is this massive stereotype that the people who are in this industry are incredibly damaged. Often, I think the presumption is that they've been sexually abused. Um, that's certainly the impression I, I received anecdotally, like as a teenager, and it's weird because I'm probably the last generation. I think I was 17 the first time somebody said, come to my house and let's look at the internet. And I was like, oh my God, how did he, he's gotten it. And 
the first thing he wants to do, and I think the most Googled subject that exists is pornography. So it's it's not like he was, you know, um, some some kind of enclave of debauchery, um, was essentially taking from the pages of like celebrity sleuth and celebrity skin screen caps of films. There wasn't yet streaming on any level or, or the accessibility of porn. And every single kid after me, including you have three sons, is exposed to everything. Right. Like the moment they can get online, everything. And I think there's a presumption that in boxing that everybody who's going into that is damaged in their own way, that nobody with any agency would ever elect to get into something where you're going to be beaten up in public as people are cheering it on. And yet that's, that's not been my experience in meeting those people and walking into gyms all over the world. Like it, it doesn't fit the stereotype at all. So I wonder for you, how much did it line up what you anticipated the milieu of of the industry was, or strip clubs and that kind of thing, versus what it, what the reality was of, of participating. So there's absolute truth to there being damaged people. I mean, it's I, I see a lot of that, especially being a producer and stuff. Is I, I see a lot of people who who had a real tough time growing up, or. Uh, you know, were were hurt or endured terrible circumstances and things like that. Um, what I didn't—it's not that I didn't expect to see. It. I, I knew just from from being a dancer that um, that um, you know certainly you 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 meet your fair share of 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 people that fit stereotypes. But I was also really um, surprised to see that just this. A, a larger variety of of women that that had absolute and total agency. Um, people that one one woman, her husband was um was doing his residency at a he's he's a doctor. And it, it's just there were so many different types of people. and and so getting into into porn, I, I, I fully expected that to carry over. Um, so again, I, I see a lot of drug addicts. I also see a lot of, you know, married folks, business people, I mean, this insane number of women that, that are in just absolutely just ingenious with their, their whole, their whole, they're like entrepreneurs, they're figuring it out. Right. Uh, 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 some parents, you know, all, all different types of people. So it is true though. I mean, there's the, 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 the first question I, I usually get when I've, uh, when I've, um, um, when people know uh, that I work in adult is, is, you know, is almost, it, it, it's almost like, like, how, how can you, like, how can you do it? You know, or that, and then how are you going to tell your kids or do sure. your kids? Th those are the things I, I can't fault them that. I mean, if, if you've never, I guess, lived outside of your box it is it is it is crazy i mean I, I look at some of the things i've shot or some of the stuff that comes out and it, it does seem really insane some of that stuff seems really over the top so um so i, I understand it um but yeah you're right i mean that that is that is a similar thing to boxing you know uh people can't conceive of of, of wanting to punch or get punched or um the risk involved you know, there's a tremendous amount of, I think there's more risk in the fight game than an adult though.
Um, but it, but it, it's it's interesting though that it's like a common theme of nightmares is to walk into a, a crowded room or a school naked or yep. to be chased or assaulted, the fear of being humiliated or or violated. And I've heard like I, I listened to a number of your interviews that I thought were very interesting. Two two points that really caught my attention. Ah, it's frozen again. Hang on. Is it better now? Yeah, now I can hear you. Now I can hear you. Better now. Yeah. Um, you you referenced that porn was fantasy, and and you talked about a lot of the things that you are filming, the subject matter of the filming. Like it could be horror is a big theme of of a lot of your work, like a right. horror backdrop. And, and even some of the action, the more brutal or rougher stuff that's there, doesn't have anything to do with your fantasy life of what you want to bring to the bedroom in your personal life. Right. It's for the people watching it. And I thought that was very intriguing how you are compartmentalizing or forced to compartmentalize this, the work versus the personal life. And I'm like Joyce Carol Oates wrote this book that a lot of people like, I, I really had trouble with it, that talked about boxing in the, from the perspective of that these are all people acting out suppressed aggression in regular life, and they get to have it out in this safe venue of inside the ring. And that's not really been my experience of meeting most boxers, that if they didn't have a, a legalized way to beat people's heads in, that they'd be out on the street fighting people endlessly or, you know, just ruthless criminal behavior. It was something that, like, I don't think Joyce Carol Oates has spent a lot of time sparring. In, in For sure, you know, no. just <laughs> you can't. I, the best boxers, I don't think, are angry when when they're when they're right. in. I mean, there's so much thinking, and 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 the, you know, that's the thing too is this this um, stereotype of boxers being stupid and just brutes. Right. And I'm like, if you've ever if you've ever watched Mayweather. Or or Lomachenko or any of these people like the, the 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 strategizing that goes into it. I mean, you have to you have to be thinking. Um, it, well, people I don't think can conceive of the idea of getting into a ring or getting onto a set and and just having faith in yourself. I mean, you have to believe in yourself. I mean, at the point that you 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 get in and you're 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 about to do this 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 thing that that uh you know. Um, I don't know how you describe it. Um, it, it. People never consider that, like that, like these fighters or or these performers or these dancers or anything that 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 they're. I mean, to do to be able to do it at the highest level, you you have to you have to believe in yourself. You have to have faith in yourself, and you um, you have to be strong. You know. Mm -hmm. um, at at my best in in scenes or times that I've been performing, I mean it's it is it is a similar feeling to, I think when you when you're sparring and you're feeling good, um, and you're so completely in the moment, um, that you're almost working instinctively. Uh, it's very empowering. Uh, there's there's scenes out there. I'm very proud of those scenes because they just it was just the symbiotic thing of just work. You know, it's like a dance. Right. Um, 
Uh, it's not always that way. I mean, in the same way that I've come out of sparring and just felt like shit or just like, what the hell was I doing? I don't understand. That wasn't me out there. Um, and you recover from it. It's whatever. You learn from it. Um, there's a lot of similarities between uh, between performing and, 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 and sparring or fighting, I think. Um, but... Yeah, it's I, I'm always weirded out when people write with authority about things they clearly don't understand. Yeah, I've never you know? done. Yeah. Well, and it jumped out at me also uh, that it's interesting that an American audience, probably a global audience too, um, finds it far less compelling to watch boxing, qua boxing, um, if they're wearing headgear, if there's more precautions to make it safer they find it less compelling. Just like if NASCAR was totally safe where everything was pillows, that if they fell off the tracks, we want danger. And oh yeah, condoms. I, Condo and condoms. I, that, that was it. Yeah. Head, headgear and condoms I thought was yeah. a very interesting parallel. And I don't particularly know why having safe sex, I, I saw, I mean, that seems like the obvious terror if, if my mother or sister or daughter was in the industry is the threat of, of contracting something. Yeah. Yeah. People, people love that. They, it's, 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 I guess, I don't know what you'd call that. I, I guess it's a, it's a cathartic thing. They, 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 they want to, I mean, I guess uh, it goes back to the whole uh, gladiator days of just, just wanting that violence. It's, it's, it's hot. It's sexy. Uh, there's an arousal thing watching people seeing the risk and your adrenaline increases i it's funny because i remember thinking like what's the big deal well the first time i got into when i got into adult and i found out that scenes were being done without condoms i'm like what that's insane i didn't know right. um it seemed really crazy to me uh you know and then and then you know nowadays the testing practices are every two weeks um yeah. also for for a lot of performers um they, you, you, I mean, legally, you have to make, make the option open to them of, of, you know, are, do you, are you comfortable not using condoms and, and, and having condoms available if they, if they choose, but with the, with the testing practices as frequent as they are, um, um, it's, it's unusual now. I mean, we haven't had a, we haven't had an HIV case in the business. I mean, where, where it became a, a thing of like, people actually were contracting it on set that goes back to 2004. And since then, we haven't had a single case. Um, usually people will go to get tested because they want to start, and then they realize they have it, and then they, there's a moratorium where they make sure that person didn't actually have contact with anybody in the industry. And then once that's figured out. So, I mean, th things have been perfected. But um, that said, um, the idea that, that the value of a product of a you know of, of of a porn scene or porn movie goes down because there's the presence of condoms. Um, it's it says a lot. It's the fantasy. They I guess they they right. that's the justification. It's the fantasy that in this imaginary world that they're watching that condoms aren't necessary. Um, how how do you feel? Maybe this is the the complete cliche question, but I'm I'm just aware not having had pornography available during my childhood or teenage years. Um, I don't know what my view would be like if sex for me was an organic thing to meet meet the girl that I met. 
I happen to go from first kiss to sex with the same person. But if I had this entire framework of what porn is telling me is like de rigueur, like here's what you do, uh, I just think it, I don't know how I wouldn't be influenced by it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm not raising it in that way. But, but how do you, how is it for you to navigate? I always ask when I meet fighters, what is it like for your kids to know that this is what you do for a living? That every time you go out there, that there's a risk or that just the nature of what you do is so extreme by society standards as an occupation. Um, what is it like for your, I don't know the ages of your sons, but like, how, how did you prepare for that there is a document forever of, of your work um, that so much of society has this ambivalent relationship with? Oh, yeah, well, so it's, it's interesting. Um, my oldest is 13. He absolutely 100% knows what, what his, his mom and dad <clears throat> do and and stuff uh my twin boys younger boys are t- uh they're going to be 10 next week um the way that we prepared i mean i'll, I'll use my oldest as an example because it's it's sure. filters down to them um is we we decided to give him what he could handle age appropriate through the years so by the time he reached 13 he just one day just sort of couldn't remember a time when he didn't know what we did. Um, that was that was by design. Um, so, for example, he knew that by the time he was in, I'm going to say third grade, he understood that his mom and dad made controversial movies. Mm-hmm. First, he knew that we made movies just for grown-ups, and then he learned that we made controversial movies. Uh, and controversial meant meaning that you know that people have strong feelings about it one way or the other. Um, then, by the time he was twelve, and and I remember when he was he was in going into third grade. Um, Steve Holmes is a performer, is a f- friend of of um, my ex husband Manuel and. And, and mine, he's, we've, we've known him forever. And, and he has kids and they're much older. And he said, you guys, you know, you, you're gonna have to sit down and have the talk because you don't want his friends to beat you to the punch because <laughs> young and younger now kids are watching stuff. And, and our kids are very, um, they're, they're, they're not, I wouldn't say late bloomers. They're just, they're not, um, we were, so I think we were, we were, because of what we did, we were especially careful about what they were exposed to because of the nature of what we did. Um, so, so my oldest, you know, he was always late to the party. I mean, his friends knew what certain things were way before he did. Um, but so now he knows. Um, he, he, he. I mean, he accepts it. He has no interest in in um, you know one of his best friends uh, knows about Pornhub and all this kind of stuff. And our oldest, he's he's just not, um, and we have a very open relationship in terms of you know he, he's he's come to us with, with different things. If he has a crush on a girl, if he's trying to figure out what's going on with him or his friends, things like that, we have a very open relationship. And he uh, he he knows what we do. Honestly, I think he'd rather I did something else that that uh, um, that he could talk more openly about with his friends. 
some of his friends know, some of his friends' parents know uh, what we do. Um, but, you know, there's also this theme I, I know from other performers uh, or, or people in adult that have kids. Um, their kids are, they tend to be more straight-laced than their parents. I don't know if it's because the, 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 uh, the allure or the mystique about sex is so blown off, you know, that, that they're really just, they just, they're, 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 it's, it's not interesting for them in, in a way that for me, what, because it was so forbidden, I was constantly seeking things right. out. And with That's our, with like, yeah, Rocco Sofredi's kids, um, from what I understand, uh, a lot of them are just, you know, end up with kind of almost old fashioned, end up with the same girlfriend they've had since like their high school sweetheart and their, um, you know, um, our oldest is is really he's he's kind of like a woke kid like he's he he uh, has a lot of female friends he's he's a confidant for a lot of a lot of them he's um more interested in skateboarding and lacrosse than he is in in uh in even even girls but uh i mean he knows he can talk to us about anything there's no subject off limits and in our youngest ones i think they're sort of following along in his footsteps as far as they they know about as much as they should for their age. Yeah. Well, I wanted I wanted to touch on something just to see if this felt accurate for you, which is when I've seen depictions of the industry, I'm thinking Boogie Nights was probably the first one I saw. I, I want to say that came out in 96. So yeah. I was 17. And what I was struck by was originally it was a, like kind of a forbidden film to see. And, and I thought like, oh my God, to get a backstage pass into this forbidden industry, it's going to be so dark and all of that. But, and there were certainly elements. It is a dark film. It is a dark depiction. But what blew me away was the surrogate family um, context that, that Paul Thomas Anderson clearly was drawn to. It's, it's a strain throughout all of his work is looking for the surrogate family, especially the, the father figure, um, Burt Reynolds is it's such a tender performance as a director sort of clinging to the past clinging to this sort of purity of being a filmmaker and supporting this group of people um, and in subsequent um, deep dives into the industry in, in documentaries I really like Louis Theroux did two documentaries um, one of them was kind of the apex of porns um, generating money, and the yeah. other was in, I believe it's called like the twilight of the porn industry, and he revisits the same yeah. characters, which is porn after streaming has decimated the economy of porn. Yes. So I just wondered for you, because you seem to, you seem like not at all the cliche of, I think, what people who don't haven't done any haven't put forward any effort to learn about the lives of the people that are involved in this industry, like you're stable, you're raising your kids, you're educated, <laughs> you're you know you're not a drug addict, you're not, um, I don't know, like you, you, there's so much choice involved in how you're navigating your life and your career. Um, did you find? Because I, I kind of assumed with boxing also that this would be incredibly fucked up, damaged, injured people. It would be a scary environment. And it's very much similar to, to what I saw in Boogie Nights. It's surrogate families for people where their families were not safe and they were seeking safety and security. 
and people to support them. That seemed to be mainly what boxing was about, of what people were seeking was sort of like a lighthouse of safety and security. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I'm a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan, and I see yeah, him too. sometimes. I saw him, like, I saw him, I think it was two years ago, at Barnes & Noble in Calabasas, and I was like, because <gasps> oh. I could see him over... And, and I was like shaking and um, I was with my kids and my oldest was like, um, and I was like, see that guy over there? And, and my kid's like, yeah. I'm like, that's a genius. We're standing like 15 feet away from genius. And he goes, well, go tell him. I'm like, I can't. And he's there and Maya Rudolph is there and, 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 and Paul Thomas Anderson. He, he looks, he just looks like a tired dad on a Sunday. He doesn't want to be there. He's got his hands in his pockets. His kids are running around. Maya Rudolph is there trying to, to control the kids, like, okay, what do you guys want? And, he, I, and I could just see in him, he's just like, I don't want to be here right now. I'm like, I, I can't go up to him, he's with his family. Um, but uh, anytime I have a Paul Thomas Anderson sighting, I'm so excited. One of these days, uh, well, one time, it was in the 90s, he was at, it was called Mayfair Market. It was on Franklin and Hollywood, near where I think he lived in Hollywood, now he lives in the Valley. But I, I, it was late at night. I went in there and, and he came around a corner and I made eye contact with him, kept walking. And, and I got home. I'm like, what would I have said to him? Like, I can't stop him. You know, I just, I always just assume people are like the rest of us. They just want to go in, get their stuff and leave. And I was like, oh man, I should have said, hey, Eddie Adams from Torrance. It's a quote from Boogie Nights. Mm, sure. Never, never had the chance. I'll, I'll run into him again someday. And I'm just going to say, I, I know that I probably seem like a psycho. I think you're amazing. Um, but Boogie Nights, I remember that that was um, the first time I'd seen a movie about the business that was done with with kindness. And he clearly did his research. And the fact that he had Veronica Hart in it, who's Jane Hamilton, is somebody that I absolutely love her. She, I worked with her so many times. Um, she directed me and stuff. She ended up production managing stuff that I did. I put her in, like, acting roles. And I just, you know, she was... Uh, for me, she's she's one of the, the just, she's an incredible human being. And um, she talked to me about working with him. Nina Hartley talked to me about working with him in that movie. And uh, he, he, you know, he, he was somebody that approached it as someone that, you know, wanted to learn about, um, about, about how, how it functioned <clears throat> and about the relationships. And very much it's, it's, I, I see it, I see a lot of people helping each other. Um, there's um, that, that, um, performer advocacy groups, we have, um, people reaching out all the time. It's one of the great benefits of, of, of social media now with like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and things like that is, is there's, there's no shortage of people reaching out and saying, Hey, I have a doctor that's not judgmental. If any girls need a, a good OBGYN, that's not going to judge you hit me up in DM. Anybody, I'm, I'm selling all my old wardrobe or, um, hey, it's getting close to tax time. You know, the, um, the, the APAC, uh, APAC is hosting a whole thing on how to file your taxes. Accountants available. Like, there's, it's, there's so much more in terms of, of resources available to people. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some real pieces of shit in the business, absolutely. But they, they tend to be the sort of the seedy underbelly that you 
they're, they're, they don't make up the mainstream or the bulk of of the industry. And there's a and any bad apples that there are like like I mean, there's always going to be shitty, awful directors in the same way in boxing. There's going to be shitty promoters, you know, shitty coaches, people taking advantage. And and you just what's great about social media now is those people get called out and they tend to either be forced out or have to do massive changes if they want to keep shooting. So there's a lot of that, but, um, um, but that has been my experience. I mean, on, on the, the bulk of what I see, um, is, is people, people reaching out and helping, helping each other. And it, it does, it does function in, in a lot of ways, like a, like a surrogate family. Uh, so that's the stuff that, that, you know, you, you don't, you don't hear about as much, but it's, it's very much there. And I think, you know, I, th I think it's always, it's always been there in some degree, but nowadays with, with the way that, that technology has evolved, it's, it's, you see, it's, it's more readily available for newer talent coming in, newer people coming in. Cause I was just so struck both in Boogie Nights and it seemed to bear out. I mean, I think Boogie Nights was based on an article in Rolling Stone by Mike Sager, like a long article about John Holmes and all of that. Um, and the Wonderland crimes and that kind right. of thing. Um, but with Louis Theroux, where he's being photographed as a potential cameo performer in the films, and I mean, Louis is so uh, innocuous, a physical presence, but the people that he's meeting, um, some of which the male performers who are identify as completely heterosexual are also working in gay films yeah, yeah. and and i think it's the only time i don't know if you're a fan of louis Theroux's documentaries but i saw him kind of pester a couple of them where he's making a point to say like you kind of enjoyed it a little bit didn't you and i was thinking would you like can he really be doing this? Can you really be pestering a guy who's clearly very ambivalent about the idea that to pay the rent, this is what he's choosing to do. Like nobody's forcing him to do it. Um, but the people were so human. And like, that's the gift he has as a documentary filmmaker is to come in with openness. And it felt like a very unfiltered view of the industry where, um, none of it conformed with, with my preconceptions of what it might be in the same way that Boogie Nights completely surprised me by um, these are ordinary people ex navigating rather extraordinary circumstances for, for most of us. In the same way that boxing is an extreme thing, but it's very ordinary blue-collar people for the most part that are involved in it. Right. It's funny. You, I remember you mentioning to me uh, Louis Theroux, and I, I'd love to know which documentaries or where I can access them uh, that he did about the adult industry. I don't know why that com I completely missed that, um, but I'd be so curious to see. I'll find them. I mean, and I mean that maybe that's a good place for us to go because it was so unbelievably delineated between porn generating so much money. Right. And porn just being destroyed economically. And you and I have talked about that in the past um, with, with some messages where I was asking, like, how bad is it for somebody who's not just a performer, but you're directing and producing now that streaming is available for free from, I think, three major platforms. Yeah. What was yeah. the industry like before and after, I guess, what, Pornhub, RedTube? Uh, 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 
Yeah, so Pornhub was a big one. You porn, I mean, there's so many you now. Porn, yeah. Eskimo, like there's all these these sites, but Pornhub being being the biggest one. It's funny because I sometimes I'll I'll have that with like like the 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 newer people coming in, and I'm just like, gather around. I'm going to tell you about a time when you could make millions <laughs> of dollars if you just had a camcorder, a couch, and a couple of lights. Right. Um it was a very different time when I started. Um, I couldn't, if I wanted to work every single day, I could. Um, it, it, it's, there was just so much and there was so much money. Um, and I remember that, uh, I think it was around 2008 that, that there was just, I was hearing whispering, like little murmurings on sets about, about, um, about uh, uh, like the, the porn piracy and all of these things. And at the time I was married and I was directing here and there. Um, and, and, and my husband at the time was, uh, he, he was a pretty, very, very popular um, performer and, and director in the business who was, who was doing incredibly well. And and we just basically watched his his royalties for his his stuff just just monthly going down going down going down going down, and people were just trying to figure out what the fuck to do. I mean, it's like you would shoot a scene, and and then within within a week it was available for free. Boom over here, and then you could you could have it removed, and it would pop up over here off, off of something based out of the Netherlands, and then over here, and there was no control. You there's nothing you could do about it. And now, um, so it was just, it was like a domino effect. And, and what happened, which was interesting, is as this was happening and as girls, you know, um, studios were shutting down and, and now where it used to be, if you were a girl coming into the business, you could work constantly because there were so many different studios, uh, there's not as many, so you're lucky I mean, I couldn't, I wouldn't have started in the business if it was like, you're only going to be in, you, you can only perform like four times a month. What's the point? Um, and so what's interesting was as, as this was happening, uh, Twitter was becoming a thing and clips for sale. And now, now there's opportunities uh, for talent to become their own bosses and they produce their own content. Because what the what you can do now, I mean, in the old days, I remember if you if you know if you were a fan of Jenna Jameson, well, you had to go and watch vivid movies and you waited for her to do an interview and you would read these things. You had no access to her. And now you have as a fan, you have direct access to, you know, if you love Brandy Love, you have direct access to her. You can reach out and request a custom scene and you pay for it. And that's your scene. And I'll do it sometimes where where um um, a lot of what I do, for some reason, uh, people like me in the kind of dominatrix framework, but I get a lot of requests for things where I'm doing like small penis humiliation where I'm saying the person's name. So I'll <laughs> that and send it. <laughs> no. But that's their scene. That's theirs. Wow. You know, they, they don't have to share it with anybody that's theirs. I'm speaking directly to them, telling them how terrible they are or whatever, or things with feet, you know, <laughs> people want foot things. Um uh. But people can reach out and they can get very specific things. So 
if any good came out of it, it's if, if you have some gumption, you get to control your brand, you get to control uh, how you come across, you control every aspect of your image. Because when we were, you know, when I was a, a like a, a porn starlet or whatever, a lot of my image was determined based on how I was marketed. I didn't have a lot of control over that. Now girls and men, and guys too, they, they get to control kind of how they, how they um, what their brand is, stuff like that. But but yeah, it's, it's it's a different time now. It is a very different time in adult. It's nuts. And one 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 thing that that Theroux's documentary illuminated for me was just how counter to like every other occupation that's available, how expendable men are in the industry in in many respects. In terms of the pay gap, is that women make so much more than the average male performer. Um, which I just think is a very interesting feature of the industry is, is that all of the stars in porn are are female. Like I mean, there's a few males, but but by comparison, um, it's it's I, I I haven't I don't have the statistics in front of me. Maybe you can inform me. But that women make a lot more than male performers. It, per 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 scene or per movie, yes. Here's the the difference is. Um, for example, let's say uh, I'll use Mark Wood as an example. He's a performer. Um, he's been around forever. Um, so let's say he, let's say I'm gonna you know let's say he makes half of what. I'm trying to think of a, a Lauren Phoenix. Lauren Phoenix was a big deal in like 2002, 2003, 2004. And so, but there's Mark Wood, and he makes half of what Lauren Phoenix makes. Lauren Phoenix eventually reached a point where she was shot out. No one wants to see Lauren Phoenix anymore. She's kind of worn out her, 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 you know, she's, she's been shot by every studio. They want to go on to the next girl. Mark Wood is still there. So there's okay. a, it, it, for, the way that I look at it is like, it's the tortoise and the hare with, you've got, you've got, you've got this guy and they're there. And Mark Wood has been in the business since the nineties and he's still performing now in 2020. So for every girl that comes in and is making two to three times as much per scene as as Mark would, they they get pushed aside, and the guys keep going because they're the for, shelf for a, life is different. Because they're basically a penis. They're they're right. a prop. The prop can be used and used and used and used and used. And and if you're lucky, sometimes you for these guys they they they're you know they they have a. Um, a mystique or an allure that, that 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 keeps them also with a ton of fans like um, like Manuel, like Rocco Sofredi, like um, Ramon. They, they, some of these guys that are that are um, that have their own sort of fan following. Um, the good news is is now I don't see the it, for something has happened because I think that so many of the the women in porn have become their own personalities. Uh, you know, Julia Ann has been around since the 90s. She still has a huge following. Her career has spanned. I mean, it's unbelievable. Same with Nina Hartley. I think the, the, the women that become sort of beloved personalities, not just beautiful, but, but they, they, they have followings, people that want to keep seeing them, so they get requested a lot. Um, they've been able to, uh, to persist as well. But that didn't used to be the case. Yeah, and I, I, I used the wrong word. I didn't mean that men were expendable. I think what I was trying to say was that women are so much more higher profile For than sure. men yeah. 
generally in the industry, which is interesting, counter to to like every other sport, for example. Sure. Um, I guess with the exception of tennis, where women seem to be more celebrated than men a lot of the time. Right. I think boxers get this a lot. There's this stigma about performing, whereas, as, as you say, like you're fulfilling the fantasies of the people paying you and the people watching. They're not necessarily what you're interested in doing, and yet uh, Deep Throat, I believe, conservatively, is the most successful film of all time. Um, Last Tango in Paris comes out, and it's this great revelation to see an X-rated movie with a mainstream star like Brando. Um, so it's this society that is obsessed and addicted to this kind of thing, where for you, it, it's a way to make a living and support a family. It's not necessarily your obsession in life to to fulfill fantasies for these people. I, I guess I just wonder, like, what is it? What is it like, like just the glaring hypocrisy of your, not necessarily your audience, but sort of <laughs> society and, and how it's changed where now uh, Jenna Jameson has a book, I think, how to, how to Make Love Like a Porn Star. Tara Patrick has a book. Porn stars suddenly are no longer subterranean in the culture. They've become kind of, like they were kind of reality stars before they were reality stars. And I just wondered like, that evolution, what that's been like as, as you've been in the industry? It's so, it, it's interesting. Um, I mean, certainly there, there's been a lot of, uh, uh, um, there, there's, there's been to a degree, a kind of mainstreaming of, of porn. Rocco had a, a documentary um, on Netflix. Rocco yeah. did. Uh, which was which was pretty eye-opening for a lot of people because he he's sort of the the example of like somebody who's done so much extreme you know it's not just having sex I mean Rocco did some wild wild stuff in in, in his movies but he's he's a guy with a with a wife and kids and he has different business ventures and and this is something he he's he's done and um there's there's quite a few uh, uh, books that have come out and keep coming out uh, Ashley blue had a book called um, Girlvert that came out as her memoir. So there's these different memoirs that have come out. Um, I, I don't know, and, and, and also music videos with adult stars in them and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I guess it's just, it's, it's interesting to me how still very, I guess, puritanical we are as a society. I, I, I don't, it's it's one of those things where I don't see that big of a difference between going to set fully tested, you know, going through uh, sitting in the makeup chair, talking with your co-star that you you know or you don't, but you, you usually we have you have people in common that you know, and 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 you know sort of doing this this sort of athletic event that uh and, and then you you get dressed and you go home and and it's it's your day I. I I guess I never understood what the big deal was. Mm. Um, for a lot, for most, for most, uh, for most, I think performers and 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 directors and 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 crew, that it's it's really just it's it's pretty s sterile 
I mean, it's pretty, I don't want to say sterile exactly, but, but it's, it's not this wild, crazy sex orgy cult thing, you know, this <laughs> yeah. thing you do. Uh, I, I mean, I liken it to a lot of, um, I always say that, that porn for me is it's very blue collar. I mean, you, you, you go, you, you, you punch in, you, you got your construction outfit on or whatever, and you, you go to work. And, and some days it's fun and you discover something new about yourself. Uh, some days it feels like work because you kind of have a lot on your mind or you wish you were doing something else or you're, you're, you're going through thinking about other things. Um, there's some people that absolutely derive an intense amount of sexual pleasure from it, like Steve Holmes that I mentioned earlier. That guy is, he's, he's sort of, um, he's a very interesting guy. Everything is exciting to him. I mean, he's, he's a true, true, uh, um, kind of pervert. He just, he loves it. He loves it. He loves having sex with different girls. And I mean, you know, good, good for him. And, and there are days when, when it's felt like that for me and days when it hasn't, but I would still rather do that than sit at a desk. I'm a very physical person. You know, so uh, I I don't understand why it's so difficult. It's I guess it's the it's the, it's the sex and that how can sex be meaningful if if that's what you're doing? You know, to 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 earn money. I guess I guess people just they they see it as a sacred thing, as strictly a sacred thing. And uh, I always say like sex is it's everything and it's nothing. I mean it it, it is mm. it is all the things. So it's it's really interesting to me when people just can't. They, they just, they can't get outside their, their own heads, I guess, about it and imagine, um, imagine it as, as, as work or as, as, a, as, a, as a means to, uh, to, to make a living, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's funny, <coughs> you know, the last time I think we were chatting, you mentioned about going for your MFA, and I presume, would you still be working in the industry if you went off to do that? Yeah, so my work in the industry now is is um, and that MFA is on hold because of this quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. So I'll revisit. I have to revisit that. Uh, um, it, it's uh, yeah. I my my work has changed quite a bit. I mean, I I pretty much um, I was working for uh, for a, a a company based out of Montreal, um, shooting uh, a lot of stuff, and parted ways about two years ago. And so most of what I do now is I, I'm just, I'm write, writing and directing and, and then doing my own, my own content um, and stuff. So uh, I have more, I guess more time. There, there was a period where I was writing so much. Um, I was writing just, it was constant script, 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 script for, for, for this one particular company with the different studios. And I just, I didn't have any time to think of anything on my own. I was sort of stepmom and stepson, stepdaughters, authority figures, uh, you know, underlings, blah, 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 blah. And it was just this very formulaic stuff, just churning it out. And, uh, and I think I just, my brain went numb. I couldn't think of anything beyond that. And when that ended, um, I was able to, to come up with, with, with new ideas and write different things. So I'll, I'll write maybe three, big scripts a year, which gives me quite a bit of time to do, to do other things and think about other things. It's, it's actually really nice. You know, it's, it was a grind. I wanted, I wanted to ask you, there was a documentary I saw, you would love this also, because it's all about David Lynch and Hitchcock are two of, two of this philosopher's favorite subjects of, of cinema. 
and he made this point about pornography being essentially a conservative genre be, for the fundamental reason that we're not really allowed as viewers to have a narrative that we can empathize with the way we can with movies. Like in movies, the prohibition is I don't get to see them fuck, but I get right. to care about them. And right. the story that's bringing them together is very compelling and is demanding and I'm emotionally invested. And he made this argument like, surely there's not such a dearth of screenwriters that porn couldn't accidentally stumble onto one that would command our, our emotional investment. So why, why is it that porn has this reputation of being like almost sort of Chaplin-esque and, you know, the, the guy's coming over to fix, fix something here, I've got the right tool for it. I mean, this cl very cliche idea that people have about porn as being like a very silly genre and, you know, like commiserate with the kind of music that people will mock where they start playing the bass line or whatever. Um, I know that it's, it's, it's evolved a lot now um, with control being sort of doled out to more people where there, there is more autonomy. But why fundamentally was porn, because it, it, it seemed very accurate to me that it was very conservative as a genre, other than that it was full on sex. I think the idea is, I mean, the joke that I always made was, you know, if, if, if people want to, to care about something you know, they'll, they'll go spend their money and watch a Lars von Trier movie or whatever. And if they want to jack off, they're going to come and watch this. It's, I, I call it the, um, because, well, I mean, there's certain movies that I just found compelling and I love. I loved the opening of Misty Beethoven, the, the Radley Metzger movie. Mm -hmm. um, I loved The Devil and Miss Jones, which I reminded me, of, you know, it was sort of based on Jean-Paul Sartre's We Clow or No Exit. The, the idea yeah. that she's at her hell is that she can't get off. Um, there were certain adult movies that that I, I found a lot of um, that that that, I, that stuck with me. But I think that as we've moved forward, the idea was. But there's there's also this this idea of that, that 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 sex has to be slapstick, stupid, and funny because I that that's still something that I I see a lot is people just. It's almost like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is this is base. You know, this is dumb. Uh, sex is somehow funny and, and stupid, and so the, everything becomes a funny setup to to the, to the denouement. But um, um, I think that people really keep porn as this is this separate thing, <clears throat> and now more than ever, porn is has become very fast food. Um, I call it, it's, it's become this fascinating thing where, because now you have it on here, on your phone, you have it on um, your computer. If you, you know, you're working in, a, in finance and you got 20 minutes, you can lock your door, quickly jack off, find a scene that's, and just, just that, that sort of gets to the point, you get off, then you go finish work, then you go watch something meaningful at the theater that you're spending money on stuff. So. I think we've really geared it up to be this 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 quick thing, um, because it used to be like masturbation used to be this very intimate thing where you had to spend you had to devote some time you had to go get your VHS tape out from under the bed, you had to stick it in the VCR, lay back on your bed or the couch, either fast forward which takes time to the part one part where the girl does the thing and the guy does the thing. And then you're done, but it took time. 
You know, you, you, you've spent time doing it. Now it's like, well, you can do it in your car in like five minutes if you want to. Yeah. Um, people, I, I, it just seems like um, no one really takes it seriously now. But I've seen more money going into like high quality production now. And, and, and people are kind of coming up with good movies, like, yeah. like good movies. I started working with this company um, out of Spain, Erica Lust, and what they've done, which I think is brilliant, because sometimes the sex goes for too long. Like, let's be honest. Like, I mean, 45, 30 to 45 minutes is a lot for, for, for like just fucking. Um, and what Erica Lust does with a lot of the movies is they'll watch the movie through, the feature through, and if the sex feels like it's taking away from the story or it's going for too long, they'll edit it down so that there's a rhythm. Because that's the thing too, is sometimes you're watching a movie and then the sex goes on forever and you've sort of forgotten or stopped caring about what happened before and then it continues on and you kind of just want to stop. So, uh, I mean, a lot of it is skill set too. I think a lot of the early porn wasn't made by, by artists or writers. I mean, a lot of it was just, you know, they were just trying to get to the important parts and whatever it took to get you there quickly was what you did. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dana. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, look forward to chatting again sometime. Yes, yes. See you later. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.